There are days that define your story beyond your life. Welcome to 5-Minute Arrival. The podcast where we look at the film Arrival five minutes at a time. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. Any questions? Where do they want? Where are they from? Why are they here? This is a priority. Our priority today is minutes 21 through 25 that starts outside the tent at the base camp by the shell in Montana. And then we immediately cut into the tent, an orange tunnel, as Marx tells Ian and Louise that these two soldiers standing there will take their bags, and I'll take your cell phones. And we cut to a different angle, as he says, cell phones again, and Ian hands him one, but I noticed going through this that Louise does not hand him a cell phone, which means either she keeps hers or she doesn't have one. I know later she doesn't have one, because the climax of the film is that she has to find a phone at one point. So maybe she just forgot it or she doesn't carry one. I'm surprised he wouldn't assume, though, and ask again. Like, hey. Well, he says it twice. Oh, okay. (laughs) But she doesn't, she never hands him one. Maybe they just edited around it accidentally and she was supposed to hand him one first. And, oh, I forgot to say, we are here with a guest. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I thought that was a little rude, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) We've only had a guest once on this show. I forgot how when we introduced them. (laughs) I've, I've been listening to the room minute too often. I thought it was going to be one of those things where you did an intro and then you did your, and then, you, you know. No, I was thinking of the room where I wait until I talk yeah. and I acknowledge them. I'll edit it so it sounds normal. Uh, and we're here with a guest, Chris Frain from Open the Podcast Doors, Hal, and This Means Something. I think there's a subtitle to both of those, but Movies by Minute shows about 2001 and uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Robert. How's it going? Good. And uh, yeah, I'm the host. And uh, actually, co-host of This Means Something, uh, yes. Tierney Steele, helps me with that podcast. Actually, she's a, a driving force behind that podcast as well. And I'm I'm excited to be here. And I think that Arrival, it, it's, it's not going out on a limb to say that they are, it's a kindred spirit of a film to Close Encounters. And also, I think visually and and also in terms of pace and theme and all that uh i think it's it it sits pretty well with 2001 i mean you could make a triple feature out of these so i'm I'm excited to be here and and it's a good fit i think yeah now continuing with the segments they follow marks down the hallway he gives them some badges to wear and then he brings them to Dr. Kettler, well, I should note, because I'm going to get obsessed with this in a little bit, they turn right out of this hallway to go into this room. All the rooms are off to the right, because the way the thing is set up. And they meet Kettler, although the first time we see him, he is just blurry in the distance and across the room, which a big part of this movie is we follow behind people as they're walking around a lot, and we see people not clearly, Hmm. the way especially they're introduced. Can I point out real quick that Dr. Kettler is played by an actor named Frank Shorpion. Okay. S-C-H-O-R-P-I-N. And if my last name was Shorpion, I, I'm just, and I'm in show business, I'm going to go ahead and change it to Scorpion. I'm sorry. The, the opportunity <laughs> to have your name be Frank Scorpion would be too much for me to pass up. And we're all thinking it anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My, my note on Kettler was that because I just watched The Day the Earth Stood Still this past week, is the general in that movie is named Cutler. And I was I hmm. don't have any evidence of this, but I was wondering if this is a reference to that or just a coincidence. It, it's funny how this setting and these characters borrow from 1950s science fiction, yes. which, of course, tended to be more campy or more ham-fisted. 
I mean, it, it's the classic setup of like military, civilian, but intelligence maybe related mm-hmm. folks, and then the scientist slash doctors. Yeah. You know, and inevitably there's going to be a conflict between them. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that, that struck me on my most recent viewing that like, oh, this is at least in its initial setup, very similar to just like the day the earth stood still or yeah. the original Godzilla. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, th- these are the same archetypes of characters. Oh yeah. And that will, that will keep coming up in this too. Cause Halpern has problems with the way they run things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Kettler's is bad, but Halpern, who we're going to meet in a minute is definitely like that. Cause he's CIA. Mm-hmm. But first Kettler asked them, uh, when was the last time either of you have eaten? Louise says last night. Ian says same. When's the last time you did something stressful? And Ian gives a great answer. Does now count? <laughs> Just saying. And I love because we've been discussing whether or not Louise kind of remembers all this already. Is it she doesn't really react to his joke. Right. She immediately goes to the serious question of who's being carted off in the medevac because they just saw a body get taken away. I have a note on that. Yeah. And I don't know if it's if I should bring it up now, but do you think that's the previous language expert? I assume because, because it, Weber introduces her as taking someone's place, so I'm guessing right. it's that person. Yeah. We don't know what happened to them. I mean, not to get ahead of ourselves, but Louise seems to be sort of panicking when she's in the suit later mm-hmm. on the, in the truck. Question, though. If they asked her previously, I mean, they've been trying to get her. I think this is happening over the course of a few days. Yeah. Is it just that person hasn't been doing well previously and that was the final? Maybe. Yeah, maybe they got some old guy and uh, he just couldn't handle it. Just the stress of it. He had a heart attack or something. They have him in the bubble like he's been contaminated, which is a great visual, but I don't Mm. think he was. Uh, It's only Friday and the ship arrived Tuesday, so they haven't had much time for the situation itself to have a reaction to, like someone have a reaction to it. And Kettler tells her not everyone is able to process experiences like this. I'm going to get some blood from you and give you an immunization dose that covers a battery of bacterial threats. Could you sign these, please? He's, he, all of this stuff rolls together. It's nice. He's yeah. going to take their blood. He's going to give them a shot. He's going to make them sign something. And it's all like it's one long sentence. And roll up your sleeves. Either of you claustrophobic. They both say no. Actually, I think this is when Ian kind of just grunts <laughs> his no. <laughs> Louise says no. Catler says, currently taking any medications, allergies, pregnant. And the movie cuts to mm-hmm. Louise for that one. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean... Well, she's the only one who, she's the only one who can answer that one, I guess. Right. As far as we know. And she says no. But we've, in the previous 20 minutes, we've seen what we think are flashbacks. Yes. That she has had a so, child, yeah. Yeah. So, it, I don't know. There's a little bit of poignancy there. I like that. Yeah, it gives her a moment of thought regarding, yeah, a child. Kettler tells her the booster is a kick to your system, so you may experience some side effects, nausea, dizziness, headaches, a ringing in your ears like you have tinnitus. And I looked this up, and yeah, that sucks. Some people have gotten really bad tinnitus and gone partly deaf after certain booster shots. Yikes. Like, I don't think I want one of those booster shots. <laughs> oh, Are you real an quick. Are anti-vaxxer now? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Only when I need to talk to aliens. <laughs> quick note about that. This possibly could be a reference or an homage or whatever to the interrogation scene in uh, Close Encounters because the uh, Lacombe and Bob Balaban's character, David Laughlin, they're talking to Roy Neary and they're asking him about his experience in the last few weeks. And they say, have you had any episodes of it's something like dizziness, nausea, 
a ringing in the ears. And, and in that case, it's really odd because he says, a ringing in the ears, somewhat pleasing even, which is huh. like really strange. But yeah, I might be out on a limb on that one, thinking that that's a reference to uh, Close Encounters, but I had to point it out. But yeah, it could be. I mean, a lot of things this movie feel like references to other things, definitely visuals too. Yeah. So the dialogue could as well. The short story is not that long, so they had to add a lot of specific details. Mm-hmm. Then we get a smash cut to Louise walking through the orange walkway again. Some soldiers talking in the background. Uh, they're not saying anything that exciting. They wouldn't go either way. You see what's happening to him. How does this even work? We're behind Ian and Louise again as they turn right out of the orange tunnel into a blue room. And then go into a larger room with a bunch of computer monitors. And I love this is one thing this movie does well is it gives us information without telling us it's giving us information. We hear the Australian scientist before we see him, mm -hmm. and he is explaining what happens when they're inside the ship. He says, the readings did not change, but I don't know. It's like we're insects on a piece of paper, and they're easing us out of the house. At exactly 112 minutes and 19 seconds, gravity starts to shift and slides us out of the room. I assume the 112 is a reference to the original story, because that's how many ships there were. Oh, jeez. Other interesting thing. Yeah. Well, first, this simile, this visual is great. Easing us out of the house. like Oh, the insects, there. yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if 112 minutes and 19 seconds is some movie reference, even this one, because this is about how long the movie is before it cuts to the five, six minutes of credits at the end. Mm. Granted, I'm always trying to make things This movie numbers, is that? I didn't yeah. even <laughs> think to check that. And that, so, that is, wow. I like that. Like, it eases us out of the thing. At yeah, so now I'm wanting to check to see if that is the exact... Yeah. Where it cuts to credits. If it is, it, that's, right that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and I will insert audio later saying, yes, that's the case. Right here. Jumping in from editing really quick to say, that's actually when Louise is talking to General Shang. So it's a little bit before the end of the film, but it is important. That's me saying it. That puts a big burden on the editing team. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, well it's gotta do it. finish at exactly 100. 112 minutes. Me again. Just to point out. The guy's mouth isn't on screen, so the audio could have been added after the editing. I know pie is in, if you divide it up in segments that are three minutes, 14 seconds, it comes out even. Oh, wow. And scenes even seem to end at those breaks. So mm. the editors will do, or directors will do crazy things like that to get it just right. Yeah. And especially when the sentence mm. is at 112 minutes and 19 seconds, gravity starts to shift and slides us out of the room. Yeah. If this were pre-COVID, we, well, the film was pre-COVID, we'd be sliding out of our seats uh -huh. and leaving the theater. Credits start and slides like us out. you and don't right. stick for them. But. I'd be hanging on to the paper. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I must watch to the end and know the MPA number for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> Were animals harmed in this movie? I gotta wait, find out. As they're walking through this room, the computer monitors on the sides we see, we'll see a better bank of them at the front, but we're already seeing that there are technicians watching computers of each of the video feeds from... This one bothered me because the first one says Denmark, and I forgot for a moment that Greenland is not its own country. And I'm like, oh. there's no ship in Denmark. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wait, I'm an idiot. Greenland <laughs> is still technically part of Denmark. Until we buy it. Yeah. yeah. Wait, what? I think I'm an idiot. Greenland's oh, Trump of... Greenland is technically, it's an autonomous sub-region of Denmark. I forget what they call it. Okay. But it's part of Denmark. Okay. Yeah. Wow. It's like a territory, because the thing is actually in Greenland. And then Siberia, UK, Sierra Leone, Sudan, Venezuela, Australia, which is also up on the big screen ahead, and Black Sea. And up on the monitors up at the front, in a moment, we'll see all of them. But we've already talked about what the locations are. 
I did find it weird when we get to the front, though, that the U.S. screen doesn't have Halpern on it because he's currently having a conversation with the Australian scientist. Mm-hmm. So that means his conversation is apparently private. Mm-hmm. Like he's talking to Australia, but the other people aren't listening, which is, seems a little... I mean, I guess since he's CIA, it makes sense. He's having private conversations without the other people. I would hate to work in this environment. <laughs> This this command room, it's like a it's like a call center environment where you're just even with headphones on. I bet you're just hearing like thirty different voices. Well, hey, effective for this movie, yeah. You know the the whole theme of communication, but yeah, I would I would hate to be working in here. And this is one of the only visuals in the film where I'm just like, it seems a little hack, a little too like. Like, it seems like it's more of how we picture this sort of room would be rather than what it would look like in real life. Anytime I see a big board, and I love (laughs) Dr. Strangelove, but anytime I see a big board like that, I'm like, did they really have a big board? You know, would they really put one up? I think they'd have to now because movies have told them to do that too. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's a case where art uh, informs practice Mm -hmm. or whatever. As we're seeing all this, Halpern asks, have you found a scientific explanation for it? Like, is it for them? And the Australia scientist says, uh, no, we think it's for us. Air doesn't seem to circulate inside the chamber. So after about two hours, we run out of oxygen. Yeah, that's odd. And then he drops in that line about, like, they could suffocate us. Well, that, if, that comes after they Ian, wanted to. But yeah. Halpern oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, he says it doesn't take 18 hours to pump fresh air into a room. And Ian jumps in, says atmosphere. Right. Ian, from off screen. Halpern says, excuse me, and Ian says, if their atmosphere is different from Earth, it would certainly take hours to rebalance their O2 content and pressure for every time they open their door. And Halpern immediately says, so you're saying they could suffocate us if they wanted. So, right. CIA and guy I, assumes I they're think, trying to kill us. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that's his perspective mm-hmm. on it. But it also gives us some stakes, especially in the scenes coming up, that initial encounter with with the heptapods the idea that you're putting yourself if you're part of that team you're putting yourself at their mercy yeah by going up there or when she uh, are we allowed to do spoilers at all are we allowed to jump ahead i think time? we already have yeah I think <laughs> okay <so. laughs> but when she undoes the the hazmat suit you oh know, yeah and it's just the whole idea that you're really making yourself vulnerable but it's a trust issue and that and trust is sort of necessary for good faith communication Mm -hmm. and i thought that was so having that as one of the dramatic plot it's not a plot point it's a a dramatic stake or something that they could be suffocated that helps serve the the theme of the movie well and so does halpern's reaction is as a cia agent who's thinks a certain way his impulse is to think a certain way of the aliens as well which comes down to the language stuff we'll get later in the film yeah. So with communication, we're always bringing in our past, our preconceived notion mm-hmm. of how people are. And we're also always taking a risk. Yeah. Might not be literal suffocation, yep. but it's plenty of metaphorical suffocation. In right. And every time they go to a meeting, there's a countdown on it. So they're always going to be limited to what they can, mm. what conversation they can have, even once they can have conversations. That's when Weber jumps in, says, this is Agent David Halpern with the CIA. Let me get you two to your station. So he gets them away from Halpern. And he leads them into another room uh, that is now off to the right from this larger room. And this is where I go backward and look at the aerial footage of the camp because this layout does not match the camp and it bothers me. 
Oh, you're doing you're doing some room two thirty seven right analysis of this. Like yeah. it's impossible no for there. Danny to keep making keep making that left turn. That the hotel doesn't look like you know doesn't <laughs> match up to that. And yeah. it, the camp looks like it might have even been real. Like they set it up out there, but I guess the interior stuff is easier to do at a set. So all of this stuff is in a. I didn't check the end credits, but. Probably somewhere outside London. I don't know where they filmed this. No, they filmed in Canada. Yeah. At some studio. And it doesn't quite match because there is a long hallway, but then all the rooms are to the right. And then the other rooms are disconnected. So they wouldn't be able to go from room to room like this. Hmm. But they do because movie. <laughs> Weber jumps in, says, remember, we need answers as soon as possible. Actually, listeners would have heard this clip a lot because it's in our opening. What do they want? Where are they from? Why are they here? This is the priority. And then they come into a room with a table and some soldiers about. There's at least one guy who's dressed like a civilian. Weber introduces, says, everyone, this is Dr. Ian Donnelly. He'll be running this team here. So I guess this is the... The physics guys. Physics, yeah, Yeah. the physics team. Ian just has questions. Have they responded to anything? Shapes, patterns, numbers, Fibonacci. Synthesizer music. (laughs) Right. That's what I would have. That would have been the first method. I would have been like, hey, everybody shut up. I'm going yeah, to get close my synthesizers set song. up. Yeah. Yep. What music have we played for them? I don't, I'd play some craft work for them. <laughs> see if they respond to that first. I'd play, I'd start with like, uh, pocket calculator and see what they think of that. Of course, is one of the things that defines humanity, trying to figure out the purpose, why people are doing the things that they're doing. Oh, yeah. Humans, of course, being natural meaning makers and then fibonacci just briefly explain for a lot of listeners probably will know what the fibonacci or at least have heard of it but but fibonacci is when each number is the sum of the two preceding ones and it's strongly related to the golden ratio which is two quantities are in golden ratio if their ratio is the same as the ratio of their sum to the larger of the two quantities okay So Fibonacci himself, though, the Fibonacci numbers were named after Italian mathematician Leonardo of Pisa, who was later known as Fibonacci. He published a book in 1202, Tiber Abaci. But the Fibonacci sequence as a medical concept has been described as early as 200 BCE in Indian Mm. mathematics and was traced back to an Indian poet, Akarya Pingala. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And apparently used the sequence in his poetry, like studying poetry. (laughs) Kind of like a haiku, but you would have to get every line is just longer and subtracting things. I think it really hard to write write is longer and longer. My understanding of, of the Fibonacci sequence is also that it can be used to describe a lot of things that we see in nature. Yeah. Yes. The famous one is like a nautilus shell. Yeah, a shell. Uh, looks like a um, if if you anything that kind of spirals outwards. And we had a spiral in the last segment of this movie when they approached the base. They spiraled. That's what in they did. It. Yeah. Yeah, did a 360 oh. of the base spiraled and then landed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like a galaxy or a Cinnabon, mm-hmm. you know, something <laughs> like that. All the wonderful the, things in nature. Yeah. Golden ratio, you as someone who draws as more of an artist, probably more aware, like is used in human form, like drawing the human Yeah, form. human form yeah. stuff. <laughs> Logos, I know a lot of people try to put numbers like that into it so that there's a certain, if you have multiple curves, you always have certain distances between their sizes. Right. Yeah. Because it's better on the eye hmm. rather than have curves that are all too close to each other. So it's it's almost something that works at a um, 
subconscious level then mm-hmm. yes. for the yeah. observer. Yeah. And then in the film, it's a thing for Ian as well, because he's into numbers. So he wants to put right. numbers on everything, patterns and shapes. And the whole thing with Louise is she just wants to talk to them. <laughs> she doesn't want to force in her, them into her patterns and shapes. We come to Weber and he says, we can't tell what they're saying when they respond to hello. So don't get ahead of yourself. I think Weber is looking more to Louise for mm-hmm. them getting something done. And then we follow Weber takes Louise now into a room again off to the right. So they're circling. Actually, maybe that's why the set was built this way. It's the set is also a sort of spiral. Yeah. And one other quick thing about shapes in this film. In this scene in particular, we have like the dark rectangles of the lights and you have the rectangular ceiling you have the squares that all of the well, yeah the military base is all rectangular countries are it's you just have like a lot of harsh geometric patterns and like chris mentioned it just feels like very constricting mm-hmm. and harsh and chaotic at the same time because too many people are there yeah they're talking so i think that's purposeful and you get a lot of juxtaposition in this film of like the spiraling of like the circles the spheres with this harsh geometry which we've talked about earlier in the framing just from the house Mm -hmm. yeah it almost reminds me have you seen sicario yeah it reminds me of when they go into the tunnels yeah under the border like that's what every time they're walking down these hallways it has the same lighting and claustrophobic feel Mm -hmm. that 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 movie had yeah there's not much reason for this hallway to be here all of these buildings could right, just be right, separate. Right. The hallway is just Unless an extra thing. The the only thing I could think of is you want to keep people out of the rain. Yeah. And or if there was some sort of radiation or biohazard emanating from the thing, that at least gives you the ability to move between buildings without having to suit up. Yeah. Some level of protection while you figure out what's yeah. happening. But yeah, tent cities in you know that that we use for our forward deployed bases or whatever they don't have hallways i don't think no, between them no. that's like wasted material and these hallways aren't tents exactly they're rectangular like constructs mm. they've got frames to them louise says what have you figured out whoever says we're just getting started good morning he takes her into a room with a bunch of people i i like in the last room ian immediately shook hands with some guy like they're being friendly here one of the guys is already getting up to shake louise's hand and say hi he says, uh, pleasure meeting you. And there's already two other people getting up. Like people are excited to meet each other, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Maybe these are other linguists who know who she is. I don't That's know. what I was going to say. It establishes her or reestablishes or reinforces her status yeah. as like one of these preeminent linguists. And as podcasters, we should recognize the the files everyone has open on their computers in this room look like sound files. Yeah. So they're probably yeah. examining what the aliens are saying. <laughs> So Weber introduces her, so she'll be heading their team, taking over the mission from Dr. Walker. So yeah, Dr. Walker might be that one who just got taken out. And then an alarm sounds, and Weber says, that's a 15-minute warning. You scuba dive before? And I like that people's lines all blend together here. Punctuation doesn't mean much in this place. <laughs> it's like an Altman film. Everyone's talking <laughs> over each other. Yeah. And then we smash cut to the dressing room, which has a metal frame in it. So it's might be more of a self-contained thing that got delivered as is. As the camera tracks backward, you can see it's divided into segments, too. There's the yeah. segment where Weber is, where they're putting the orange suits over their white outfits. And then there's the room where Marx is helping Ian and Louise. And there's some other people helping them all mm-hmm. put their white suits on. Ian asks, what kind of uh, radiation exposure are we walking into? Marx says, nominal. These are just for safety. As the camera tracks back, we also get that framing of rectangles within rectangles that this movie 
does a lot of framing hmm. things like the movie screen. And Louise says, is there any physical contact with the, um, am I the only one having trouble saying aliens? <laughs> Which no one answers. It's weird. I don't right. know why that line just kind of sticks out to me. Like what? she wouldn't say that. Right. Know. When I was reading the transcript, <laughs> I was, I put it as Ian and then I watched the minute. And I'm like, wait, Louise says that. Like it feels more like an Ian line. Yeah. Because she shouldn't be having trouble saying aliens. I think the idea is like, this really is, this is the first contact with extraterrestrial life. Mm -hmm. If this really did happen, it it would be so strange to be an academic and yet use terminology from sci-fi movies. Does that make sense? Well, except aliens isn't necessarily a science fiction term. Oh, I know. But I'm just saying that we have a hundred years of history where... It's purely a theoretical or uh, a fictional construct, the idea of aliens. And then you're asked to do this in real life, you know, go talk to these these, uh, heptopods, whatever. And it's like, oh, you mean, wow, I can't believe I'm saying this, the aliens. Like, it's just that, that, that shock of realizing you're in what is essentially a science fiction movie, but it's really happening. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a line that's a problem. I just think it, would have made more sense if it were Ian than Louise, because oh, okay. she isn't shocked by this. Yeah. Possibly because she already kind of knows it's going to happen. Hmm. Like, she's only realizing, hey, this stuff I had in my head is kind of real. Hmm. But uh, then Mark says there's a wall, like a glass wall. You can't get to them. Ian asks, so what do they look like? And Mark's is kind of a jerk, so <laughs> you'll see soon enough. Hurry up. I think that's great. And I'm going to, again, bring up Close Encounters, the idea of teasing the audience and then not revealing, and then revealing a little bit, and yeah. revealing a little bit more. This was like he was trying to get the shortcut for the audience, you know. Well, what do they look like? Tell me real quick, you know. No, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you, you know. And it's like, oh, now we got to find it. And if he had said, oh, they look like giant squids or whatever, <laughs> we would we would already know. Because they didn't, did they reveal what these looked like in the advertising for the film? Do you remember? I think we had seen that they have that weird hand on the glass. I think a trailer included that. Yeah. And that's about it. But no, we hadn't really yeah. seen them. So I, I, as an audience member, of course, I want to know, but it's better if you don't tell me until we get there. Yeah. I just wish they also didn't tell us that they weren't telling us. Exactly. Just get rid of it completely. Like, don't even have Marks respond. Like he's already walking out of the room. Like, oops, he missed the question. Right. We cut to Louise now in her orange suit, exiting the orange walkway. Floodlights off to the left. The shell is up ahead. Trucks to the right. Then we get a reverse. There's a helicopter still dropping things off. They're still building this. And the sound design switches to inside Louise's suit, which you would be familiar with mm-hmm. from 2001. They do that a lot. Yep. Stanley Kubrick himself recorded the breathing audio inside the space helmet. So there, there are long stretches of that movie where you just hear the astronaut breathing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, that's one of my favorite bits of trivia that I learned while doing that podcast was that he basically just put on a helmet, went into the recording booth and had them roll him breathing inside the helmet for, you know, 20 minutes or something. And then just put that together for the film. I forget what movie I was just reading about the sound design for, but they were talking about recording through people. Like they would purposely put the microphone up against the back of someone's body to record something in front of them Hmm. to get this sort of echoey weird sound to it. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing you might get here with like the muffled sound. Because, yeah, we hear the breathing, but we also hear there is other stuff going on. She can hear stuff. 
It's just we're inside the helmet with her. Right. And then we're behind her again with the camera. As Weber comes over the radio and says, the suits are clumsy at first, but you get used to them, load up in the second vehicle. So this this scene actually triggers my claustrophobia, <laughs> which is having, if you've ever had, and I, I've got a funny story for this, but if you've ever had something that covers your entire head and body, it is, for me at least, it, it actually triggered a little bit of a panic attack. This was years and years and years ago, but I was working at a bookstore and we did an event where Clifford, the big mm-hmm. red dog, would sign, but, or no, I didn't do signing. It was just, you had your picture, the kids would have their picture taken with Clifford. Well, I volunteered to be Clifford <laughs> for the day. And they were like, okay, you get to wear the mascot suit. You just sit there and the kids come up and you will take the pictures. And I asked, how long does it take? How many kids? And they were like, oh, it's like, you know, we get usually about 40 kids. It takes maybe about a half hour. Well, of course, the year I did it, there were 600 kids lined up around the around the block. I'm exaggerating, but they had like three times as many kids show up for it. Okay. So I put on the, the you know, the, the torso and legs part. I'm like, I'm doing great. All right. And then I put the the helmet on, you know, the mascot helmet. And damned if I didn't immediately have a panic attack <laughs> having that on. There's there's just something about having your whole body covered like that. And we had to take breaks. Like they were like, oh, Clifford has to go for a walk. <laughs> He'll be back in five minutes. And I would go out the back door of the store and take that thing off. Like as soon as that door closed. That's what they do at Disneyland. And- yeah. They have the, yeah, the, the people that, that come and walk out and get the characters to walk them away to take a break. Yeah. They're only allowed to be out there for, I don't know whether it's 45 minutes or an hour and 45, yeah. but either way, it's like they're taking very frequent yeah. 10 to 15 minute breaks in yeah. their suits. And I can relate to that. I don't, I, I mean, I have sensory issues anyway, but I don't like anything on me. I didn't even wear Halloween masks as a kid. I hated even face painting, which isn't even constricting, but just that idea of stuff being on my body earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And especially my face. I don't like it. Yeah, so I I, I, I sympathize with, mm. with our protagonist here. Even though I don't think that's the issue. It, yeah. it triggered that in me, but I think it's more just, I think it's finally when you're you know it's like walking to the end of a high dive yeah. you know and that's like as the most nervous you're going to get is that first time you do it you know this is sort of like oh once i get in that truck they're driving me up there you know this isn't just a movie anymore and we get a nice juxtaposition once she's in the truck because she's kind of panicking and every time they show ian he's smiling yeah, he's having a I great wrote time that down, i'm like he even looks over smiling. at her and we're yeah. hearing her breathing but he just <laughs> looks back to the shell he's fine he doesn't notice Weber tells him we'll be there in a few minutes. Make sure you hold on to something. But, so we get a shot of her in the truck. We get a shot of Ian and Weber sitting next to each other. We get a nice shot of the shell where we can finally see that it's... Someone's review of this movie was great with like, the aliens flew all of this way to come to Earth and then stopped before they got here. <laughs> we got to make the last move because the ship is sitting above right. the ground, which now we see. They didn't land. It's just hovering there. Another shape visual, when we go from inside with all the harsh square and rectangular geometric pattern, outside they're focusing on things like the satellite dishes, where you just mm-hmm. get an extended shot of, yeah, like over by the helicopters, yeah. of those, and you just see the circles and the spiral, which is outside. Yeah, it's like a transition yeah. scene <laughs> between all the harsh rectangles to... We're going to get some curves now. Well, I love that it just hovers there. Mm-hmm. That inspires its own unease and terror to see something that large 
40 feet off the ground or however much it is. I think that's that, that was a great idea. I don't know if that's in the original story. No, the original story of the ship is different. It's this translucent spherical thing. Even the script, it's this semi-translucent sphere that I believe is just sitting on the ground. This was something they did just for the movie. Mm. And I think it works much better visually. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Even metaphorically think about it. What's the scariest time in communication? It's right before the communication, like right before you know you have to have that hard talk with someone or right before, you know, something's about to happen. Yeah. Just like that. And, and in that moment, they the have conflict. to go underneath yeah. this giant thing. So it makes it even scarier. It's like, we're going to drive under there and park. <laughs> yeah. Once we've made a choice to enter a conflict or confrontation, then our brain shifts modes. But mm-hmm. right before it, it's that terror. The dread. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Uh, yeah, we get the shot underneath the shell as the trucks park. There's floodlights down there. There's two different scissor lifts. We get a shot of again. She's still having trouble. And then we get, and this was accidental that we got you for this episode, but we get that shot of just looking up at the yep. shell, taking up most of the and screen. And that, yeah, by, I immediately got excited and wrote in my notes, it's the monolith. Mm-hmm. It's it's that shot of looking up at the monolith. All it needed was the sun, you know, cresting over the, the top of it. I would have uh, said, I, I caught you, Villeneuve. <laughs> I know what you're up to. But yeah, that's, uh, is that what we end on here for the five minutes? Pretty much. It, it yeah. barely cuts to another shot of the trucks, and but then it cuts off the segment. So basically, that's the last shot of the segment is yeah. just looking up at the ship and uh, also sp- uh, back. Also Sprock Zarathustra, yeah. Doesn't start playing. Yeah. That's okay. Right. It, this has its own score. I may have to edit this out, but speaking of monoliths, did, yes. did they ever figure out what the other monoliths were? The thing in in real call. life? Yeah, the here? real ones. Oh. We okay, had a, so like we a actually, third or fourth one, and then I haven't heard anything in like a week, I don't think. Here's the crazy thing. I went to pick up presents for a secret Santa exchange. Trust me, this is going somewhere. <laughs> and I went to our I, – I ordered them from our local REI here in Albuquerque, and I went to pick them up, and there were these cars behind me, and they were like – Trying to get around me as I'm pulling into the parking lot for the REI. They're like, like right on my tail. And I'm like, this is strange. And I get the merchandise a few minutes later and their cars just piling into this parking lot and like going around me. And I'm like, I don't know what's up. I go home the next day. I see in the news that there was a monolith right just like 20 feet. From where I was, or, or, or yeah, maybe not 20 feet, I would have noticed. Maybe 200 feet. Yeah, I'll multiply it by 10. On the other side of the parking lot, and everyone was going to get their picture taken huh. next to it. See, I didn't even hear about one in Albuquerque. In the parking lot of an <laughs> REI, and it was the, the one that we know, the silver yeah. uh, you know, thing. And so I saw that in the news, and then, of course, the way human nature is, later that night, a bunch of people vandalized it and yeah. tore it down. So, in that story, there was a a statement from an artist collective in Santa Fe that sort of claimed responsibility and said, and you can buy one for $20,000. And that seems suspicious yeah. to me. I'm convinced it's like, a branding that's, marketing thing. Yeah. It's being rolled out very much. Well, like, the first yeah. one was weird, though, because it was in some spot in Utah where, like, no one would have seen it. 
if no one had happened to go climbing you can't that get day. to it well you yeah. have to invest people in the weirdness of yeah. right it and so it's like they had to wait until lots. someone found that first one and then okay put yeah. up the rest <laughs> but if this is in here the show by the time maybe we heard what it's a marketing for and we'll put in their advertisement here yeah or no i won't I'm still curious, and and of course, like had it happened two years ago when we were in the thick of the podcast that we were doing mm-hmm. about yeah. 2001, I would have just lost my <laughs> mind. I would have been like, "Oh my god, we have, have to, to go to every one of them. We and have check to figure this out and touch them, see what happens." But I think I, I have the cynicism now as as well that oh, it's just some marketing. It's the angel statue from something. The Simpsons. They're gonna open. Oh walls. yeah, I remember that. <laughs> wow, that's a really good <laughs> reference. Yeah. I, I was thinking it was like when Aqua Teen Hunger Force came out, they, Adult Swim, yeah. put up these weird, like, electronic signs near in Boston advertising it, and people thought it was, like, a terrorist message <laughs> or, like, some sort of signal to terrorists and, and acted very angrily about it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you made that connection. I think they were, this was like in 2002, yeah. so that, that probably had something to do with it. I, I don't know. Their their origin and purpose are still a complete mystery, to quote Haywood Floyd. For now. For Maybe now. by the time you hear this, it'll everything's solved. But in the meantime, if they want to hear you talk more, well, not about 2001 anymore, but... I mean, it might, I'm sure it'll come up in mm-hmm. your other show. Oh yeah, well, the 2001 podcast. I mean, it's it's wrapped, mm-hmm. but it's still available as far as I'm as far as I know. And that is called Open the Podcast Doors How, and you can find that on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And then this new one that we're working on, it's called This Means Something. It's me and Tierney Steele. We're watching Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and we're doing this one minute at a time. And that's also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And I think I I successfully got it onto Google Podcasts. I'm not sure. As well as Stitcher and a few other places. But you can also find it on Libsyn. So L-I-B-S-Y-N, which is a platform that like distributes it. So we have our own link on there. And I believe it's This Means Something podcast com. I should have written that down. But if you go to that site, you can probably find it there. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun with that. And uh, I think you're you're on the schedule for that one as well. Mm-hmm. So just want to say, I look forward to listening to your 2001 podcast. I had never seen the film until a few years ago, I want to say 2016 or 17. Mm-hmm. My son is a fan. He and he was, was on the show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he... Noticed that it was playing in IMAX at one of our local theaters, so he asked if I wanted to go with him. And I was like, eh, I don't really want to, but I did want to hang out with him because I thought it was cool that he asked me. So I went and getting to see it for it being the first time seeing it and seeing it on a huge screen with amazing sound in IMAX was incredible. It was so visually stunning and so meditative. We ended up going back, I think, three times. Yeah, saw like three different shows showtimes that weekend while it was there and now it's in my top 10 films list wow (laughs) i am so jealous um (laughs) of of you getting to experience that for the first time in the best way possible (laughs) other than 
Well, you know, I take that back. I don't think, I mean, I'm not taking that back. I'm saying, <laughs> I don't think it, I'm taking back a thought I haven't said yet, which is, you know, maybe the best way to see it would have been to be in that 1968 audience, yeah. you know, with not having any idea what the movie would be. Yeah. But a lot of people reacted really negatively to it. Just like I'll, I'll use an example here. When I first saw Arrival, I didn't hate it. But I didn't know what to make of it. Hmm. And it's only on repeat viewings that I get the, especially the emotional impact of, of this film. So, but yeah, I, you know, I first saw it in a, it was a 70 millimeter presentation of it, but I had already read the book and that kind of ruined it for me. And, um, you know, I still got to have the experience of this, you know, the, the big screen, but most people haven't. Most people, you know, the first time they saw it was on American movie classics or whatever, yeah. you know, and, and that I can totally see if someone saw it on TV and that was it, they'd be like, Oh, that was kind of, kind of interesting, but whatever. But yeah, I'm, I, we were always, we, it came up several times on the show that like our ideal guest would be someone who just saw it for the first time in a theater and and getting to like find out what they think of it without any preconception or any any time even to to ruminate on what they just saw yeah just like what are your first reactions coming out of that right now you know yeah and that would have been me because i actually didn't read it i really didn't know anything about it oh that's great so i wouldn't and you haven't seen tons of movies either so even the references all over the place exactly you haven't seen as many yeah yeah that's great so but it was exactly my type of film Mm -hmm. just that for lack of a better word just pretentious so meditative just i don't know i love if i can just mentally get lost Mm -hmm. in something for a few hours that's awesome yeah and if you want to hear my current show, Life as a Playlist, where I tell autobiographical stories to the backdrop of top 40 music that impacted me while I was growing up, sometimes some social and political commentary as well, you can follow Life as a Playlist on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to hear me obsess about science fiction, you can listen to Annihilation Minute every Thursday. It's one minute at a time, but I put a lot of uh, extra material into that show, so it's taking its time and going very in-depth. Yeah, that just happened. Thank you for listening. Follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 5-Minute Arrival. Or go to lemmingdrops.com for links. to think this was the beginning of your story.